Everything under your roof is important, so make sure your roof is up to the job. For over 20 years, SureTop Roofing has been covering triangle homes and businesses. SureTop Roofing is certified with all of the major shingle manufacturers, providing a 50-year non-prorated warranty. SureTop Roofing has estimators, project managers, and design consultants on staff, guaranteeing superior service. Visit SureTopRoofing.com. SureTop Roofing has you covered. Sure Top Roofing presents a Carolina contractor with your host, Donnie Blanchard. Brought to you by GAF Roofing, shingles and materials. We protect what matters most. And Mid-Atlantic Roofing Supply and Garner, a roofing supplier with a different approach. And welcome to the pre-Thanksgiving edition of the Carolina Contractor Show. How you doing? I'm Eric Smith, and with us as usual, your host, Donnie Blanchard from SureTop Roofing. How you doing, Donnie? Doing great, man. Ready to eat next week. Yeah, the keto Thanksgiving for you, right? Yeah, I'm on week seven now, so that'll be eight weeks into it, and I think I deserve a cheat day. What's going to be your cheat? Oh, probably the desserts, because I'm not allowed to have sugar, so that's going to... Any particular dessert? This is our second year without my grandmother, and uh, just whatever the family puts together, we just have to make the best of it, because uh, without her around, it's just not as good. My favorite, for those of you keeping score at home, my favorite Thanksgiving dessert was something my wife made. I'd never had it before, Hawaiian pie. Mm. It's a pineapple pie, but it's like upside down. Yep. It's fantastic. That's what I look for every Thanksgiving. But enough about desserts and more about the show itself. The website is a great place to start. TheCarolinaContractor.com is the website. Donnie puts up all the information from past shows on that site. Like last week, we were talking about safe rooms and safety shelters, HVAC SEER ratings, multi-stage units, and zoning. And it's interesting we mentioned HVAC. We're going to later in the show explain some of the uh, terminology used in general construction. And that can come in handy if you're having a, a GC come to your house to do some work, and they'll drop some terms and and phrases and acronyms that you don't understand. We'll give you a little insight on that. But again, the website, thecarolinacontractor.com. But you had a little news information there, Donnie. I did. When we were doing our research on the continuing education requirements for general contractors that will start next year, I ran across something that applies to architects. So a lot of people don't realize this, but an architecture license is just kind of a a lot of gray area. A lot of times people say, hey, I'm an architect, but they don't actually have a license. And really, uh, the checks and balances for that is in play when you get to the inspections department with the plan review, because really they just look for an engineer stamp, which trumps everything. So uh, with architects now, they're going to be required to undergo a a different licensing requirement. It's going to require them to pass a test. And, of course, the continuing education will apply apply to them yearly after this goes into effect. But... Um, quick story, back 10 years ago, I had a, a doctor's office that I was going to build for some folks. Well, it turns out that the land was zoned R6 and not O&I, which is office and institutional. Mm-hmm. And so I went through this process with the city council that took almost six months because there were some neighbors who just didn't want that to happen, and uh, they had to go and plead their case that this was going to be a good thing for the community and the neighborhood. So we successfully got, I want to say, just under 50 acres rezoned for those folks. And, of course, day one, property value shoots up. But um, that project was my baby, is how you say it, because I was the, the general contractor, the architect, uh, so I guess somewhat of the developer with the uh, change in the zoning. But through the process, I was required, of course, to submit the standard blueprints, and that was no problem because that was well within my wheelhouse. But mm-hmm. they also asked for a civil engineer drawing, and I had never done one of those before. So I dive in and do my research, and I figure out how to draw water and sewer plans. I figure out the parking space minimums and uh 
things like that that are required on a civil engineer drawing. So I cranked out this beautiful civil engineer drawing that made it all the way through the city council and successfully passed. And nobody ever once asked, hey, where's the, the engineer stamp on this? It just went through. So municipalities are a little more sensitive to that these days, and I don't think I could get that through a decade later. But it's just one of those things when people say I'm an architect, there's really no one to check behind them until now. So stay tuned on that, and we'll keep you guys updated as things change. But uh, I've got it on my news feed, and we'll see just what We'll see just what requirements go into place come next year. And we both agreed that any time there's a licensing requirement, they're upgrading the things you need to know. It's always a good thing in the business. Yeah, it might it might not go over too well in the beginning, but I think folks will adapt pretty quick. All right. The other thing you had news about was Duke Energy paying you to install solar panels. Yes, this was actually a thing last year, and a lot of folks applied to see if they qualified through Duke Energy for this credit. And there are several things that are in place. I won't run through those, but I'll post a link on our site, and you could get as much as a $6,000 credit for installing solar panels, and it's just never been that good. Um, it's important to go ahead and, and do the research and get your name in the hat sooner than later. In January, they'll start accepting new applications, and if you did not qualify before 2020 and did apply in 2019, you'll need to reapply. The applications that are carried over will just go away. When the new year turns around, Donnie will put that information up at the website, thecarolinacontractor.com. Now, today's show topic, we kind of hinted at it at the beginning, mentioning the terminology used in construction. Like I said, HVAC, mm -hmm. and that means? Uh, heating, ventilation, and air condition. That's a great example of a term that you probably hear a lot but may not have known exactly what it is. And you've kind of made a list of some of the stuff you deal with, especially, Donnie, if it's someone getting a roof or, or some work done on their house that you specialize in. Mm -hmm. And you kind of made a list here of some of the construction terminology, the first one being studs. <laughs> so some people may get excited when you say, hey, we're going to bring some studs over to the house. Right. But in your world, no, what's that mean? In all reality, it's just a big chunk of wood. So... um. <laughs> You know, just to, to clarify, we get questions all the time that are, you know, not necessarily great questions to air out, but people say, Hey, what did you mean by I fur this out? Or how do you, when you rip something, what does that mean you're tearing it apart? And, um, those questions aren't necessarily suitable for segment two, but I thought I'd just accumulate all those and then add a few of my own in here. But, um, the main pieces and parts of the framing package on a house, of course, you've got studs, rafters, joists, girders, headers. Uh, jacks, king studs, and that sort of thing. But studs are probably the most common thing that you hear, and those are the members in your wall. So those are the vertical members that the drywall is attached to on the inside, plywood attached to on the outside, and studs are usually spaced about 16 inches on center. And vertical means up and down. Right. Thank I you. learned Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> um, the next most important piece would probably be the joist. The joist are the, the members that run horizontal but upright. Is that confusing? Uh, no, I understand. Okay, horizontal but upright, and this is your floor system. So you have floor joists that sit on the foundation. Actually, there's a seal plate between the foundation and the floor system, but floor joists are what you walk on. Of course, plywood is attached to the top of the joist, and that establishes the uh, walking surface for the floor system. Now, moving upward, you'll get to the members of your ceiling that the drywall is attached to, and those are also called joists. So you have floor joists and ceiling joist with studs in between. Mm -hmm. uh, normally when people point up they to the ceiling, they say, well, that's the rafter system up there, but the rafters are actually what the roof is made of. So the floor joists sit on the foundation, studs sit on the floor joist. You've got the ceiling joists on top of the studs, and then the rafters are the last piece of this puzzle. And, of course, you attach plywood on the outside of all the rafters, and the shingles go on the outside of that. So 
Uh, I mentioned headers, jacks, and mm-hmm. king studs. The headers are what span over top of doors and windows. So that load transfer that we talk about from top to bottom down to the foundation, if you have a break in that stud, you have to accommodate that break by transferring that load out wider. So normally if you have a three-foot wide window, that header could be as, as wide as four feet, and it's supported by jacks under the header, and then it's capped off on the outside by what they call king studs. And every municipality requires you to do that a little different, but that's the short version of that. All right, this uh, next one you have, I don't know this, Perlin. So a Perlin is if you've ever seen a steel-constructed building, and, of course, they're all over Raleigh. If you're riding by and you see they look like a burgundy or a red-colored steel, Oh yeah, yeah. the Perlins actually attach to the rafter structure, and they go horizontal or perpendicular to the rafters. And what this does is allow a rafter to be spaced out like four feet, where normally you would think 16 inches on center with wood. When you get to steel, the spans get increasingly wider, and that mm-hmm. Perlin is just a horizontal member that is added to that rafter for extra support. All right, uh, band. Band. It is not like a rock band. Yeah, uh, it's boring then. I was expecting you to say that. But when you hear about a deck band, the band is actually the outer or the perimeter member of a floor system or a deck. Um, the band is actually what attaches to the house, and it's really important because people often improperly flash bands. So if you look up flash band, or band flashing on on Google for a deck, you know, you get all these diagrams. And a band can also be for your interior floor system. It's just that outer member that all of the floor joists are nailed to. I knew LVL. I've seen that before because it's sometimes been printed on the wood. It's laminated veneer lumber. That's it. Yep. And that's just the multiple layers they press together. They're Mm -hmm. all glued. I've not seen the process of how it's made. Yep. But I understand what it is. Yeah, we did a whole show on LVLs and engineered lumber, so that'd be a good reference if you wanted to dive deeper on that. All right, Donnie, you cut the length of a piece of wood into smaller pieces. You call it a what? Call it a rip. Sometimes, say, uh, you have a two-by-six wall and you order your windows and you forget to say, hey, add an extension jam to that. I guess I could go into extension jam, but I won't. And they send you a window with a jam for a two-by-four wall. Well, all of a sudden, you've got this gap to fill because the walls are two-by-six, windows are made for a two-by-four. What you'll have to do is get a one by four or a one by six and you make the long cuts with a skill saw or you can run it through a table saw if you're not so steady handed. Um, mm-hmm. and, and basically you turn a, a six inch piece of wood into three two inch pieces of wood is an easy way to say that. And women get excited when you mention fur, but when it comes to building, <laughs> it's not a mink or a chinchilla. No, sir. So, um, where I've seen this example most recently is, we did some work on an older home back when two by fours used to be truly two by four. And of course we mentioned this on a previous program, but now a two by four is an inch and a half wide by three and a half inches deep. Uh, the old two by fours were nominally cut. So they are actual two inches by four inches. We added the new two by fours in line with the wall that was the old two by fours. So what we had to do is buy a piece of plywood half inch and we actually had to rip inch and a half wide pieces from one sheet of plywood and add those to the new two by fours to make those the same wall thickness as the old. So to fur is to build out. Now we mentioned the LVL and veneer in general. LVL is obviously what we just discussed with like plywood. Mm-hmm. Veneer in general, I'm thinking floor, countertops mm-hmm. have veneers, things like right. that. In construction, when people refer to a veneer, usually they're talking to an exterior application with like a stone veneer or brick veneer you hear. So most of the time when you're saying just the word veneer, you're talking about the exterior of the house. Or fake teeth. Yeah. Uh, R-value, we hear that term a lot. That we is, know it's insulation-related. Yep. What does it exactly mean? We hit on this one almost every other week, but this is resistance to heat transfer. So R-value is what you give a wall section or a window, and, and this basically just says how 
fast or how slow heat can transfer, whether it be in or out. So right. you're listening to the Carolina Contractor Show with Donnie Blanchard, who is a GC, a general contractor. We're going over some of the construction terminology. And these are things that you can be at, at Lowe's or something and see these uh, acronyms and abbreviations printed. And you may have wondered what they are, uh, the R value being a great one. Um, PME. Uh, PME is plumbing, mechanical, and electrical. And so those are the three trades that are important to have a good qualified licensed subcontractor on a house. But you often hear about after the framing, you know, we've got to get the PME trades in there before mm-hmm. the insulation and the drywall can go. So that's plumbing, mechanical, and electrical. All right. Now, I understand what doors are, but overhead and walk doors. Yep. Um, so in construction, especially in a garage, an overhead door is what they call a garage door. So I don't know why the word garage doesn't fit in there, but overhead is the proper way to label a garage door. And oftentimes, you don't want to open that garage door every time you go in and out of the house. So mm-hmm. it's it's popular for people to put a walk door beside the garage door. So that's just a standard Exterior door and something you can use so you don't have to open and close the garage. All right. Portico. Um, porticos. Uh, that is something I learned with the architecture background. And a portico is basically a roof structure that's open beneath. So usually they're supported by columns. And a lot of times you see these open areas behind house that will have a low-pitched roof over. That qualifies as a portico. Uh, sometimes you come up to a business and you'll see that they have a drop-off area that's mm-hmm. undercover. That's a portico. Now, everybody kind of knows what a slab is. It's definitely a foundation, like when they're pouring a garage floor or something. So I think we we know that. Monolithic, how's that used in uh, construction? Because that's a generic term. Monolithic is another version of a slab. A monolithic slab is a slab that is going to support something around a perimeter. So all of the footings uh, that would go under the slab around the perimeter would be poured at the same time, meaning that a footing subcontractor would come in and dig the perimeter out like normal. He'll dig any piers out that would be supports in the middle, mm-hmm. and then he'll form up the outsides of this thing so that he pours the footings and the slab all at the same time. Gotcha. All right, like monolithic, precast is kind of a generic term. How does mm-hmm. it apply to building? Precast is, um, uh, you hear about these walls, uh, superior walls, a company called Ideal Walls. Basically, they make your basement walls, or you can do it on a traditional foundation, but they make these off-site. So precast means precast concrete and made somewhere else. All right. My son would laugh at this. Racking. <laughs> uh, racking is something I heard from my grandfather when I was younger, and I never understood it. But um, this is a tough one to paint a picture, but it's a structural tilt when all the members are running the same way. So, for instance, if you're building a wall and you have an attached, say, a 90-degree angle, and, you know, all the strength is in corners when you're talking about engineering, but mm-hmm. you build that first wall up, and there's all the studs that are running the same way. You've got a top plate, bottom plate. And you can push that wall, and if it's just nails holding that thing together, it will all collapse almost like dominoes. And, um, you know, that's why engineers have jobs, because they figure out how to keep things from racking or breaking, and they add more strength with corners. But racking is a common thing. If you see an old house that's leaning, a lot of times that's racking. All right, this one we've talked about before, rebar. My son asked this question. You explained it beautifully last time. Uh, Yeah, rebar is just basically reinforcing steel, and number four is what's commonly used, and use that in concrete slabs, use it in footers, and uh, basically this ties the concrete together. So if there is a failure in the concrete, that rebar often keeps the concrete from settling. All right, got time for a few more of these construction terms. Dutch lap. Dutch lap is uh, something that's become more common with vinyl siding. For years and years when vinyl became more popular, they just had what's called lap siding, and it's almost like a concave pattern. It just doesn't uh, doesn't look the greatest. What they did with a Dutch lap is they made a, uh, between each piece, they made a slight curve, and then it drops straight oh, down yeah. vertical. So 
that little bend, that curve in that bend adds the strength so that it doesn't look like a cupping or a concave. Exactly. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, uh, floor plan, again, a generic term, but in building, uh, is this blueprint? Blueprints, yeah. Mm-hmm. Floor plans are your are your starting point. So you want to, when you're designing a house, you want to lay out the floor plan and make sure that that fits your family needs and that that flows well. But uh, floor plan is a starting point with any type of blueprint design. Last term you have on the list, elevations. Elevations. We talk about this all the time, and I assume that everybody knows it, but an elevation if you're talking about blueprints or just the outside of your house, you know, there's a front elevation, rear elevation, right and left. And so usually on the blueprints, there will be two elevations per blueprint page. Mm-hmm. And a quick story, my architecture teacher at App State, he would test us on what we call the right and left elevation. So if you're standing there looking at a house, everybody calls their right as you're looking at the house, the right elevation. So he okay. said, no, no, if you are the house and your front is your front and your back is your back, you know, the right side has to be as if you were standing on your front porch looking out. That's the real right elevation. And I see blueprints all the time where they still get that backwards, but I guess they didn't have to take his test. At this point of the show, that little star would come over <laughs> and it would say, the more you know, we just taught you some things on the Carolina Contractor Show. Coming up, we're going to do some questions, among other things. If you have a question for Donnie, go to thecarolinacontractor.com, click on the button to submit your questions, and he loves reading them, answering them, and we're going to take a break and come back and answer some of those questions next. We'll be back with more of the Carolina Contractor, presented by Sure Top Roofing. Everything under your roof is important, so make sure your roof is up to the job. For over 20 years, SureTop Roofing has been covering triangle homes and businesses. SureTop Roofing is certified with all of the major shingle manufacturers, providing a 50-year non-prorated warranty. SureTop Roofing has estimators, project managers, and design consultants on staff, guaranteeing superior service. Visit SureTopRoofing.com. SureTop Roofing has you covered. Welcome back to the Carolina Contractor with your host, Donnie Blanchard, presented by Sure Top Roofing. And as I say, this is my favorite time of the show. It's I get to read the questions you listeners have submitted, and Donnie has to do all the brain work. I'm the beauty. He's the brains of the Carolina Contractor Show. Do you have a question? <laughs> I thought you were going to call me the beast. No. That's a compliment, I think. I don't know. Go to the website, thecarolinacontractor.com, to submit your question for Donnie. And here we go. Ready to run off with our first one, Donnie? Let's get it. We run out of hot water almost daily. We have a family of five, and we're thinking our hot water heater may be undersized. Is there a certain gallon per person calculation? And evidently... There There is. is. Yeah, this was a great question, and I'm sure that this will hit home with a lot of folks, especially if you have teenagers. Mm -hmm. Um, So for one to two people, 30 to 40-gallon tank, will usually suffice. Uh, two to three people, they recommend 40 to 50 gallons. Uh, three to four people, 50 to 60 gallons. And a family of five would usually qualify for a whopping 60 to 80 gallons. All right. I don't know. This is very unscientific. But my water heater is just under five feet high, mm-hmm. and I could hug it. 40 gallon. That's probably a 40 yep. gallon. 40 and is. it's probably printed somewhere clearly on the side, the capacity. And I do want to stress, I don't normally go around my house hugging appliances and water <laughs> heaters. I was just trying to give a visual. Yeah, that was there. a heck of a visual in the yeah, studio gave here. Me a look yeah, for a the minute. bear hug. Um, <laughs> when we built our house nine years ago, they were kind of phasing these things out at the plumbing supply, but we went ahead and got an 80 gallon. I want to say that the cost to run an 80 gallon versus a 40 or a 50 gallon was just peanuts. I mean, you're talking a couple hundred dollars a year to make sure you have enough hot water. And mm-hmm. we have three women in our house, so toilet paper and hot water are a hot commodity. Preach. And, uh, <laughs> um, 
basically this guy has an undersized hot water heater and you know he has the room to change it out you have to shop a little bit to get an 80 but uh the new hot water heaters that are becoming more popular are something that i'm a big fan of and these are called a heat pump water heater we mentioned the duke energy solar credit they also have a credit for these heat pump water heaters and of course these things cost double but after the rebate it's pretty darn affordable, and basically the heat pump, similar to a heat pump HVAC system, they use electricity to move heat from one place to another rather than generating their own heat like a traditional gotcha. electric water heater. So pretty pretty cool advancement in technology there, and basically an electric pump water heater will pull the heat from the surrounding air, and it just dumps it into the water heater at a higher temperature, and basically that's how you heat water, similar to a geothermal system that we talked about a few shows back. The, um, we always talk about making money from home, and one thing that people do is they let their water heater run all year. And if you go out of town, you know, flip your breaker for a week. It's not going to kill you to let your water heater start working again when you come back from your vacation. And, you know, if you go out of town multiple times a year, don't heat that water up while you're gone. But, I mean, what do you think your, your dog's going to take a bath, you know? I never once yeah. thought about turning off the breaker to the water heater. So you can also put these on a timer, and that's probably something you want to consult a professional plumber for. But putting a water heater on a timer so that, say, everybody takes a shower in your house by 9 or 10 o'clock, it go, a water heater goes off at 10, it doesn't kick back on until 5 in the morning. When you apply that to every day, 365 days a year, that's a heck of a cost savings. And by the way, at the end of today's show, if you ever once said hot water heaters, subtract five points from your final grade on the quiz we'll be having. (laughs) It's a water heater. Question number two submitted to thecarolinacontractor.com. What is the difference between OSB and plywood? Abbreviation, construction acronym, please help us. Right, right. Um, OSB is oriented strain board. When you walk into Lowe's or Home Depot, normally that's the pieces of plywood they have right up Mm -hmm. there at the commercial end by the register. And the slang in construction we call OSB wood chips and glue. And it's really more like wood fibers and a really good adhesive. And, And I'm a pretty big fan of OSB, even though it's the cheaper of the two. Uh, it's more like engineered wood than plywood. Uh, with the plywood, often the acronym is CDX is what you hear. And a half-inch plywood with CDX, the C and the D are actually what the surface quality grade is. So the affordable stuff, it's a little more than OSB, but the affordable stuff will have these little football shapes where when they mill this stuff, they cut out the knots and they replace them with these little wedges that resemble the shape of a football. The X is basically saying that it can be exposed to moisture. And not permanently, but it can handle a little bit of water. The Mm. kryptonite for the OSB is that if it gets wet, it starts to flake and come apart. So if you've got a good roofer, you don't have to worry about that, and and you're good either way. But OSB is actually test out to be stronger. It just doesn't hold a nail as tight. So uh, re-roof applications, you know, you really have to know what you're doing and use the appropriate nails to get those to bite. And, you know, plywood is just notorious for warping or buckling. So if you've got a lot of... Uh, temperature fluctuations, that plywood expands and contracts a lot more than what would be allowed with the OSB. All right, question number three. We didn't plan this, Donnie, but can I take this one? Go. Uh, my wife and I just did this to our bathroom. What is the best way to remove wallpaper? We went in and figured we. she actually wanted to do the reverse. It was the bottom half of the bathroom below the chair rail was painted. Mm-hmm. The above half had wallpaper on it. She wanted to remove that and put a different wallpaper on the bottom half. Right. A wallpaper is no fun, but luckily with technology, it's a lot easier. But we bought this spray. You would spray the solution on the wall and lightly sponge it to kind of smooth it out. And that solution would start loosening the glue mm-hmm. behind it. And then you have a little scraper tool. And once you get it started, if you take your time... It worked perfectly and would peel that off. I mean, big sheets at a time. Mm-hmm. And then you just had to sand and prep that surface for painting if that's what you were going to do. But you said sometimes 
with oil-based primers, there's a little bit more work involved or a different approach. No, well, it, say that they don't do as good of a job as you did and there's just some residue or some sort of adhesive left over after you take the wallpaper off, the oil-based primer is what you have to do to cover that adhesive before painting. So okay. a lot of people just grab the uh, water-based and, and oil-based is definitely way to, the way to go. All right, last question for today's show on the Carolina Contractor. Our neighbor's dog uses the bathroom in our yard. Is there a way to prevent that without causing a conflict with the neighbor? What a question. Um, I mean, this, I am not the one to ask for advice on how to keep dogs out of your yard. Right. So I'm a dog lover, and we live in the country, not in a subdivision, and we actually have this same problem. So this isn't just for folks who have neighbors living close by, but um, I kind of thought, what would Eric say? And I mm -hmm. thought, hmm, probably a BB gun. And No, I can get really medieval. I think electric <laughs> wire and car batteries, but... Oh, man. No. Okay. And well, I have pets, too. Right, right. So, um, you know, a fence obviously will work, but a fence is going to be really costly, and not everybody likes the look of a fence. A, a lot of neighborhoods, because of the restrictive covenants, will not allow you to put a fence in the front. Uh, but they definitely make sev several natural mixtures that you can look up online, and these things aren't very expensive to make. A lot of folks want to stay organic when it comes to this. Um, mm -hmm. There's another way, and this is not very humane, but if it becomes a constant problem, you can buy a big bottle of chili powder or cayenne pepper and just hit the yard where the dogs are using the bathroom, and their noses are so sensitive, usually they'll steer clear of that area. Uh, they do sell a spray treatment on Amazon. It's called Dog Mace. The uh, Dog Mace is about 30 to $40 per container, but that only treats around 3,000 square feet. So for a whole acre, I want to say the 90 or $100 bottle will treat around 48,000 square mm. feet. So if you have a big yard, that will treat that whole yard. Uh, a lot of times people just have the problem up by the road where folks are walking the dog by the sidewalk. Right. Um, they do sell a product that's a little less expensive than that called liquid fence at Southern States and Lowe's. And I've never tried this product. I just saw that it was available. And um, I think that the, the main thing you want to do if you use any kind of repellent. So a lot of folks will say, well, I'll just throw some deer and rabbit repellent out there and see if that works. That actually does the opposite because it is heavy in coyote urine. And I know that sounds gross, but mm -hmm. you're actually putting a, a dog's relatives urine in the front yard so that right. will actually attract the dogs more than it will repel them so the rule of thumb is if you're walking your dog in the neighborhood take plastic bags or something and clean up after your dog because i hate when they come to the mailbox and do that and you go to oh. get your own mail and you're like yeah, yeah, yeah landmine landmine mm -hmm. um our neighbors are our relatives so it's all in jest when we tell them and i actually called uh the son is a year apart from my son and so they're like brothers but uh I called him and I said, Kyle, I think you have a mulch fork, a uh, landmine, and a deer spine in my yard. Could you come please pick those up? And uh, they hunt a lot, and, and their dogs will just drag things you know, out of the woods that are supposed to be disposed of. And anyway, not pleasant to look at or see. All right. If you have a question, go to thecarolinacontractor.com and submit it there. And have a great Thanksgiving, by the way. Um, you going to come in next week, Donnie? We're going to do another show? I think so. All right, I, got, I got a topic for us. Let's talk about hemp. Yep. Been doing my research, so I think we can come up with something on that. It's a good one. So I want you to join us next week for the Carolina Contractor Show. Bring a bag of Doritos, and uh, we're going to be talking about hemp and other things. You want more information on the show? Go to the website, thecarolinacontractor.com. Remember, if you have an issue with your roof, you need a new roof, you might need roof repairs or something, you're just not sure what to do, contact Donnie with SureTop Roofing. He and his staff will help you out, and he'll stop by your house and take a look. And what's the best thing you can tell somebody about the roof, Donnie? Your roof looks great. Call me next year. And we will see you next week on the Carolina Contractor Show. Thanks for listening to the Carolina Contractor, presented by SureTop Roofing. 
Brought to you by GAF Roofing. Shingles and materials. We protect what matters most. And Mid-Atlantic Roofing Supply and Garner. A roofing supplier with a different approach. Submit your questions online at thecarolinacontractor.com and tune in next Saturday as we continue to help make your home great again. Everything under your roof is important, so make sure your roof is up to the job. For over 20 years, SureTop Roofing has been covering triangle homes and businesses. SureTop Roofing is certified with all of the major shingle manufacturers, providing a 50-year non-prorated warranty. SureTop Roofing has estimators, project managers, and design consultants on staff, guaranteeing superior service. Visit SureTopRoofing.com. SureTop Roofing has you covered. 